It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. The Premier League All Access podcast is proud to be brought to you by Ladbrokes. Stay ahead of all the big games in the best league in the world, the Premier League. With the latest odds, form guides, expert opinions and more. The fans are the players at Ladbrokes. Are you in? Let's go. Play at ladbrokes.com, 18 plus, begambleaware.org. T's and C's apply. Hello, I'm Sam Matterface, and a year ago I had the honour of sitting down with the legendary Ipswich Town and England forward, Paul Mariner. Now, on the 9th of July this year, sadly, Paul passed away after a very short illness. He was just 68. The following recording celebrates the career of one of England's finest strikers, Paul Mariner. Today's guest is an FA Cup winner, a UEFA Cup winner, a man that went to the 1980 Euros and to the World Cup in 1982. He scored 13 goals in 35 games for England, played for Ipswich, Arsenal and Pompey in the top flight. Later, he would go on to manage Plymouth and Toronto in the MLS. It is Paul Mariner. Hello. Hello, Sam. How are you, mate? I'm good, thank you. Let's go back to those playing days. Were you always a number nine, a centre forward? No, no. uh... I had a bit of a strange career, actually, when I was getting going. I, I was a, I was a central midfield player uh, at uh, in the Northern League. You, you know, before the advent of the league splitting up, I played for a little team called Chorley. You know, I had a few ups and downs, uh, broke my leg when all the big boys were looking at me. And then uh, we got a new manager and he said to me, I think, you, I think you can play up front. He said, have you ever played up front? I said, no. He said, well, I've got a big lad who'll protect you. And you do you do the running around, running around. So uh, it sort of worked. <laughs> Would you say you would ended up being a typical number nine? Yeah, you had a lot more ability than just being a target man, though, didn't you? You you were good on the floor as well, as cliched as that is. Yeah, uh, what happened when I first started playing? I basically played four four two in the old days. I played with Billy Rafferty at Plymouth Argyle. It was the same old up, back and through, one shows, one makes the runs in behind. Those probably not many people know what it's like to play as a two as a twosome up front nowadays because you very rarely see it. But it gave defenders a lot of problems. You just had to be on the right wavelength with the midfield players, which uh, for the most part we were. And then when I got my move to Ipswich, I was alongside Trevor Warmark. Now, now Trevor was technically very good. His, his heading ability was second to none. So... Bobby Robson said, you know, you can, you know, play off him. So um, I sort of did. And then when when the team sort of grew and morphed into the, the UEFA side, I, I was unfortunately playing with a guy called Alan Brazil up front. And I, did, <laughs> I, had, to, I had to do all the work. We'll get to him in just a second. <laughs> um, uh, what are the characteristics that define the role of being a number nine? Well, I, I think, uh, you know, I listen, I've been working in the States for a long time and obviously we... We get the you know massive dose of Premier League, and you know we see that it's going out of the game, and it's gone out of the game. The art of being able to keep the team playing, hold the ball up in the middle third. You know when you talk about Bob Latchford and Joe Jordan and, and, and players of that ilk in the old days, Cyril Regis, they would keep the team playing in the middle third, hold it up, ball would get wide, they get in the box, and they you know either knock it down for somebody or they score goals. So. There's a lot more to it than that, but initially, you know, when you break up the play in your defensive third, you've got to be aware of the, the positional play. Where will the ball generally pop out to you? So you've got to be available. And you just got to read the game a little bit. And, and when it comes into you, you can draw the foul or you can um, you know, hold it up and, you know, make sure the midfield players coming in to support you, which uh, for most of the time in my career, the midfield players were amazing. And um, what did you like about being a centre forward? I think 
I love the pressure of, you know, you put the number nine shirt on, the number nine shirt was iconic in, in my day and, uh, and, and more certainly before my day. The number nine and the number five, that was a, a classic battle on the field. You know, if, if you generally won that battle, the team would generally probably do okay, have a chance to win. I like the pressure of that. I like the fact that, um, you know, if, if you were the, the goal-scoring threat of the opposition when you're away from home, they would always chant your name and give you... And lots of abuse, which is fine. That means that you're a danger to them. And uh, when you're playing up with your again with your home fans, it's uh, it's fantastic to hear them chant your name. So I don't know. I suppose it's added pressure. Whichever level you're playing at, it doesn't really matter what level. Whether you're playing for England in the World Cup or you're playing for, as I say, in the in the Northern Prem, um, it's still the same pressure. Was it all about goals for you? No, um, my career was really broken up into into two. We had the you know, the time when I was at Ipswich was probably the most successful, the 78 side and then the 81 side. The 81 side was a pure footballing side and it had many parts to the, to the team. We could score goals from more or less every position. As far as the 78 side was, we were more of a workmanlike side, but we, we'd had little bits of quality. The, the thing that Sir Bobby Robson or Bobby Robson dr- drummed into us was just do your job. Um, when he sat down, when I was in the hotel at the Holiday Inn in Plymouth, when he wanted to sign me, he said to me, what sort of a player do you want to be? So, of course, the obvious answer, I want to be a top player. He says, well, to achieve that, you've got to have, out of a, a, you know, six games, you've got to have four good games, one very good game and one absolutely amazing game. So there's no mediocrity, there's no average stuff. I said, well, I could do that for you. I tried. <laughs> <laughs> um, were you always precious about trying to get hold of the number nine shirt? Did it mean anything to you? Well, it, it still does mean a lot to me because it's it's funny. Um, in the World Cup, um, it was alphabetical with the with your name was uh, equal to the number. So I was eleven in the World Cup, and it really <laughs> me off about it. I didn't. Uh, I wanted to wear the nine because I was. You know, I was the number nine. It was Tony Woodcock, Trevor Francis, you know, myself. But I wanted the nine. Couldn't get the nine because I'm three for a little bit bigger than I am. And um, so I, I had to stick with it. But when you put the nine on, it meant a lot to me. I know it meant a lot to, you know, as I mentioned a few centre forwards, you know, with the, and, you know, the lads used to love putting the nine on. It's very important. Who taught you to be a centre forward? I think initially it was... Uh, it was a guy called Bob Saxton, who uh, used to be the centre-half at Plymouth Argyle. A guy called Davy Proven, who was at Rangers, he was at Plymouth. And, you know, Bob sub- subsequently went on to you know, be a fantastic coach and a, an incredible scout in, in, uh, in British football. They would just quietly tell me the attributes that were needed to, uh, to, to play that role within the team. I mean, managers had, had a great influence on me as well and the coaching staff uh, with those teams. But... You'd learn so much from the season pros, especially the players that you play against week in, week out in training. Were fortunately, Debbie Proven was a, a defender and Bob Saxon was a central defender, so they could, you know, give you the little nuances of what they didn't like. So I, I would try and bring them into my game. Let's try and get a sense of who Paul Mariner is with a couple of quick fire questions and just sort of get quick answers to, to some of those uh, questions that uh, people probably want to know the answer to. Uh, what's your favourite goal? I've got three answers. A header against Liverpool uh, at Portman Road. Ray Clement said it was a, uh, the header was the most powerful header he's ever had to defend. He couldn't defend it, hit the back of the net. The goal at Wembley and hosing down weather, 100,000 in. We had to win that game to beat Hungary to go to the World Cup. And everybody makes fun of me for saying that it sort of hit me. But as a professional goal scorer I said I adjusted my feet after Sir Trevor Brookin uh, made a complete mess of it and smashed it he was going for the corner flag and that tapped it in we won 1-0 so we went to the World Cup we haven't been there for a while goal against Norway I, I, I scored a goal with my left peg some of the skills that maybe people who don't know me too well didn't think that I had you know there's all sorts of goals stick in your mind but uh, you know sort of important goals for uh, club and country who was your favourite strike partner? You know what, Sam? I had so I was so lucky. I, I had I had some unbelievable players to, to, to play with. 
you know, initially it was Billy Rafferty at, at Plymouth. We we just hit it off together on and off the field. We were we were a, a tremendous partnership. When I came to Ipswich, Trevor Warmack was an incredible partner for me. He, he complimented me and he brought he made me add things to my game. And then when Sir Bobby changed the system at Ipswich, we went we went to like a four three one two. Gates he was uh, Eric Gates was the ten. Brazil and myself up front. And we had incredible midfield players. So the service coming into us was, was quite incredible. Uh, Arnold Muren and Franz Tyson were in the middle of the park. The way that Johnny Watt protected the back four and scored 30-odd goals in one season was, was quite something. And, and it's, it's something that still puzzles me how people didn't recognise what an incredible player he was. So, you know, when you talk about Moving on to Arsenal, I played up front with Tony Walcott, played with Tony for England also, but, but Charlie Nicholas was in the hole just behind us. And I maintained if, if Charlie had one more yard of pace, he would have been absolutely top draw. The vision and the skill on that guy was, was ridiculous. So I was really fortunate. I, you know, Mickey Quinn at Portsmouth, I mean, Mickey Quinn, Mickey Quinn and I used to laugh and joke. I mean, he couldn't trap a bag of cement, uh, Mickey Quinn, but I'll tell you what, you put him in front of goal. He could just put it in the back of the net, and that's an incredible skill to have. So I, I was lucky, really lucky that I, you know, I played with Keegan, I played with Mick Shannon, I, I played with some incredible players in uh, you know the you know the annals of uh, of English football for about 10, 15 years or so. Who was the uh, toughest opponent you came up against? Hans Peter Briegel. I, I'll get, I get, I get no hesitation. No, I get asked this a lot. And, you know, in the old days, the game was slightly different. You could have a little bit of argy-bargy with the guy you were playing against. You could, you know, whack him in the stomach and stand on his feet and do all sorts of stuff to try and upset him. But nothing upset him. He was quick. Uh, he was strong. He was powerful in the air. I think he was the next pentathlete. Uh, so he's, he, he was absolutely made of granite. So as an individual, absolutely no doubt whatsoever, Hans-Peter Bregel in the, in the World Cup in... In, uh, for Germany and then the the hardest team I've played against purely and simply because of the way that they were set up uh, is Liverpool the Liverpool side with uh, Alan Hansen Phil Thompson uh, and Graham Souness protection in front of that back four he made it impossible almost impossible for me to get the ball because they had Clem in goal who was positionally one of the best keepers and, and technically one of the best keepers around. When they try and get the ball into feet, Souness would protect. And then the ball over the top, if they tried to dink it, it had to be such an accurate ball to dink it into your feet. And and Jockey, Hansen and, and Tomo were, were so smart that they didn't necessarily have to win everything. They just positionally they were they were fantastic. It still sticks in my mind. And I talked to my old mate Stevie Nicholl and we talk about that constantly about the positional play of of that that particular team, you know, Kenny and, and, and Rushy up front and the, and the midfield play was, the midfield and the back four was so well drilled. It was, it was, it was amazing to play against. It was, it was honour to play against, but so tough. Weimark and Mariner waiting for help. Mariner on his own. You were spotted playing for Chorley in your native Lancashire by Plymouth at the age of, what, 19, 20, and they offered you a chance to go and play pro football. At that point, did yeah. you have the personality to deal with such a huge move, both geographically and career-wise? Well, I didn't think I did at the time, but uh, I knew I wanted it. Just to backtrack slightly, at 16, I packed the game in because uh, I was like five foot three. Bolton came in for me at uh, when I was 14, but my uh, PE teacher said, you can get a better club than that. Obviously, we're in a hot... Coming from Bolton, Horwich, Chorley, I'm, we're in a hot better of football, you know, with all the big teams and, and the lesser teams also. So, you know, I went along my merry way at school and then I didn't grow. I, I played played cricket for Chorley. I was, um, my chauffeur in actual fact was Billy Beaumont. So uh, me and Bill had a great time for a couple of years playing, 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 uh, playing cricket. And then, then I found the game again. I played for a little non-league team uh, and then started to find my feet. And, and when I got to, 
to Chorley, yeah, was spotted by a guy called Verdi Godwin. Verdi was, uh, he was a lifeguard at Southport Beach. And uh, he was in close, big friend of Tony Waiters, Tony Waiters' uh, storied coach, ex-goalkeeper for England, been living in and working in Canada for a long, long time. But, um, yeah, Verdi said, you know, give him a chance, sign him. So I signed on my 20th birthday. I was down in London. Tony Waiters, he said, I'm going to give you 30 quid a week. I said, well, I'm, I just served my time as a mechanical engineer. I said, I'm on 35 quid a week at Metal Box. He said, well, what do you want to do? I said, I'll take it. <laughs> he said, I'll tell you what. He said, I'll tell you what. I'll give you three quid appearance and, and, and then the bonus money if you get in the team. I said, OK. So I signed. <laughs> 56 goals in 135 games. Um, and then Bobby Robson came calling and took you from Plymouth. Were you ready for that step, that next step? Did you, did you think you'd hit the ground running after what you'd learnt at Plymouth? I had such a fantastic backup group at Plymouth with the senior pros. Uh, they nurtured me. West Ham came in for me. Ron Greenwood came in for me. Uh, Johnny Giles at West Brom came in for me. I met Ron the same day that I met uh, Bobby uh, at, at Plymouth. I'd already done my research a little bit. I saw that Ipswich had, um, they were, I think they were top of the, the Central League. So the Central League had a football combination in the old days. They just won the uh, Youth Cup. So I thought that, uh, you know, it's it's strong all the way down for years to come. So I thought, well, I'll I'll, uh, I'll sign for Sir Bob. So I signed for Bobby. So it was a tough, it was a tough one because West Ham had, had a very good side. I had so much respect for Ron Greenwood. He's a tr- tremendous man and a wonderful coach. Um, I just thought that they were a little bit further in front of West Brom, uh, both those sides, but I, I, I plumped for Ipswich. And uh, I'd, had, I'd had a couple of good seasons at Ipswich, and then as the third season came along, people were noticing me a little bit, and I got off to a flyer, scoring goals, and uh, then away we go. Well, you did hit the ground running at Ipswich, didn't you? Because very quickly, you were an England player, and Ron Greenwood, who tried to sign you uh, for West Ham, ended up being the England manager, and, and you know he, he wanted you in the team. I mean, there were big number nines around on the scene at that time, like Latchford, like Pearson. Yep. Yeah, no, absolutely, and and you know Kevin, obviously Kevin Keegan and Mickey Shannon was Mick was probably just coming maybe to the end a little bit when you get your first England call up. My goodness, I mean when you you, you think about your roots and where you come from, and you know just to, I, know, I mean I, I suppose every single player said just to get in the squad was great. I remember rolling up, and the first person to greet me was was Emlyn Hughes. And you know, obviously, an, an icon of, uh, of British football in those days, and I, I didn't know what to say. He says to me, "Do you want to come for a run?" And what am I going to say? No. So um, I must admit, when I was going on the run with him, I thought, "What the hell am I doing this for?" <laughs> so it was, it was wonderful times. You know, that it's it's probably the same for everybody when you get your first call up. I actually scored a hat trick that weekend uh, against West Ham. And I was scoring goals in the that was the A and B squad. We were just playing them. It, it leaked out that I was, I was scoring goals for fun against the first team. And then at, at half time, Les Cocker says to me, "Come, on, we'll we'll have a knock around." And you know, so the crowd are chanting my name. I'm scoring goals. I thought it's fantastic. So I go back to the bench. I just sit down, and Les comes running over. And says, what, "What the hell are you doing?" I said, "I'm going to watch the lad second half. Just sitting down." He says, "You're going on." I went, "Oh my god." Well, I didn't say that to Les. I said, oh, great. But inside, I was going, oh, my God. <laughs> Anyhow, um, it was against the mighty Luxembourg. And uh, I played up front with Shannon and Keegan. And uh, I can't tell you anything about what happened. I remember nothing about the 45 minutes I got. Ipswich were some team in the 70s, weren't they? Especially the late 70s. Arnold Muir yeah. and George Burley, Butcher, Mick Mills, Russell Osman, John Walk. And that was part of the squad that finished third. And you added to that with Franz Tyson and Alan Brazil. We'll get to him in a minute. Um, yeah. But what was that squad like to be around? It was a um, selfless squad. The, the key to most successful sides is the, is the camaraderie, you know, respect for each other. Everybody added something to, to the team. Uh, you know, whether it was, you know, Paul Cooper in goal was a great shot stopper. Wasn't the biggest lad, but he relied on Butcher and Osman and then, Prior to that, it was um, 
Beattie and Alan Hunter that would uh, nod balls out for him. But we had some good footballers. Technically, they were very, very good footballers. Spoke about Walkie. His box-to-box work was ridiculous. Um, But the control, the technical, what can I say, the way that Arnold Murin and Franz Tyson changed us technically, because we always wanted, we were a technical team, but we wanted to be better. And they brought something else to the table. I remember a, a training session when, when Arnold first signed. He said, you know, I was trying to explain to him, uh, a Lancashire lad to a Dutch lad, I said, uh, you know, how I, how I like it, you know, how I like the ball, you know, what sort of movement I make and, you know, opposites and t- to get it. In one brief encounter on the training ground, we, we were able to, you know, get this incredible rapport. It was a joy to play with those lads. It must have been murder for people to play against us because we had, you know, what do you do in the old days when you play Eric Gates in the in the number ten role? Do you pull somebody out the back four? Do you drop your midfield player in? You know, how do you, what do you do? And then Brazil and myself would uh, would split. Alan would be the running in behind. I'd be the hold up guy. And it was um, it was interesting. It was it was really really interesting uh, way of, of, of playing. We we were so confident. Um, the eighty one team should have won the league that year. It didn't do, but we did some good things. Tyson and, and Muren were, were were foreign players in a league that didn't really have foreign players. Yeah, it was a very new thing for them to come from Dutch football to play in the England English first division. Um, yep. Do you think that set a trend? And, and and what did they do that helped Ipswich Town so very much? Well, the English game was was. Um... Always about right, you know, open at them from the first whistle, you know, gung ho, blood and thunder, all that sort of stuff, which is fine. When I subsequently went talking to coaches uh, in 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 Germany and and Belgium and and Holland, they go about it totally different. They didn't, didn't do it that way. It was more of a okay, you know, let's just see what's going on. We'll get them in the end, type of a. Rather than we were the opposite, we'll let's get them early, let's get two or three up, and then we can relax. So when we knew that when the ball went to uh, Arnold Muren, there was no doubt that he was he was he was never going to lose the ball. He wasn't the, he wasn't the strongest, he wasn't the quickest, um, but he saw a pass so quickly. His first touch was amazing, so he could play with his head up. Franz was slightly different insofar as you could give Franz the ball. If let's say we're under the cosh. Uh, you could give it to Franz and he could just keep it. He'd just take it in a little hole and keep it, draw a foul and just take the pressure off, off the off the side. And we learned so much from from those two lads. And with, with the way that we used to play, I, I don't know whether this is a little bit boring, but you know, when you see that what, what Pep was doing at, at City, you know, when he was bringing his full-backs inside to the, the midfield, well, that's been done for, for donkey's years. We, we used to, when... So that if George Biller was bombing down the right hand side uh, to get the overlap, then a walkie would get in the box as the protector of the back four. But Mick Mills at left back, he would come across and sit in front of the back four. So Millsy would be the protector. So if we couldn't get in on the right hand side with Burley, then we would come out and then Millsy would drop out to his left back slot and then George would come in and protect. So it was a way of playing that. Uh, Bobby Robson developed because he knew the quality that he had in the side already, but it, it most certainly enhances. With Muren and Tyson were a joy to play with, and, and just you know, terrific people. So so easy to integrate into the side. Do you think that Sir Bobby gets the credit that he deserves as a tactical innovator? He had an assistant called um, well, his first assistant uh, when I got there was a guy called Cyril Lee, a Welsh lad. And then he had a, a guy called Bobby Ferguson, a, a Geordie. They were both very, very uh, astute coaches and, you know, could see the tactical side of the game. I think it was the way that the, the boss put it over to us. He, he made it very simple, you know, so there was, you know, you couldn't, well, you didn't tell me this or you didn't you didn't say this. You know, it's very, very clear. He, he would put it to the lads in such a way that, yeah, we, we got it. Instantly, and, and and picked it up not only on the training ground but on the field, you know, fairly quickly. So um, I think he does. I think he deep down 
knew that uh, he had some tremendous backroom staff and the backroom staff there's only like two or three blokes it's not like nowadays we've got an army of people backing you up no I, I think so Bobby what he did not only at Ipswich but also with England and you know Barca and, and wherever he, he went with his with his teams he always had good people with him but he knew exactly what he wanted to do we mentioned that Alan Brazil was with you at Ipswich what was he like yeah. to have as a teammate he was fantastic. He was selfless, Alan, in actual fact. He knew uh, that I could do things better than him and, and I certainly knew that he could do things better than, than, than I could. Uh, he had a fantastic left foot. He's such a knowledge of the game. Um, he wasn't the best trainer in the world. and he, uh, We're just talking about listening to advice from the sidelines, which we very rarely did. But Bobby Ferguson really had it in for uh, for Alan, and uh, Bobby Ferguson would tell him to come over so he could give him some instruction, and Pelly would do exactly the opposite and go on the opposite side of the field, and uh, they used to get some blazing rows, but it was uh, nothing like I don't hear on talk sport every now, every now and again. <laughs> <laughs> did you did you like playing with him? I love playing with him. I mean, as everybody knows he's an incredible character. You know, goes on to United and goes on to Tottenham. I mean, a fantastic career that he had, you know, playing for Scotland. And What you see is what you get with... with I, I used to call him the Bond. People don't understand why I call him the Bond, but uh, me and the Bond had a great Bond and uh, it was it was a joy to play with. He was he was quick in the channels, whipped the ball in, and you knew when it was coming in. There was never any doubt when he when he got it got out wide and did the, the full-back or the guy marking him. You knew it was coming in, which is fantastic for a striker. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. The Premier League All Access Podcast is proud to be brought to you by Ladbrokes. There's a lot more to those 90 minutes than what goes down on the pitch. With the latest odds, form guides and expert opinions, you'll know the score with Labrooks. Odds update on Talk Sport with Labrooks. Are you in? Let's go. Play at labrooks.com, 18 plus, be gambleaware.org. T's and C's apply. Welcome back. This is Talk Sport. You're listening to Upfront with Paul Mariner. My name's Sam Matterface, and a year ago I had the privilege of recording a retrospective look at Paul Mariner's career with the great England striker. Sadly, on the 9th of July this year, he passed away. But we decided to air this programme in tribute to him. You won the FA Cup at Ipswich. You were man of the match in the final. What are your recollections of your performance that day? What did you do that earned you that accolade? It was the system. This is what, you know, I think people nowadays who are so immersed in Champions League and Premier League, you know, the elite of football. We, we had a squad. It was, it was a thin squad uh, at Ipswich. But um, as I said, the collective was very strong. And I remember on the Thursday, we got down there, we went to a high school and there were clumps of grass and it was absolutely hosing it down with rain. Uh, we're doing this training session and the gaffer pulled us in. He said, I'm going to change the system. So we said, oh, this will be good. Because as I said, we're always a 4-4-2 system team. He said, we're going to go 4-3-3. He said, but we're going to play tennis side. So we said, oh, this will be interesting. 
So we said uh, Roger Roger Osborne, who didn't play the previous week against Villa because we've got battered six 0 at Villa Park. So that's another story for another day. He said, Roger, you're going to mark Liam Brady, so we're going to play ten v ten. He said, Tolbert and Walk. He said, you're going to uh, take uh, Hudson and Price to the cleaners. You'll dominate the middle of the park. He said, Mariner, you're going to play through the middle against uh, Willie Young and O'Leary, and we're going to split the uh, Clive Woods on the left against Pat Rice and David Geddes against Sammy Nelson, because that's where they get their their feed from for the for the team for the players. And I'm not kidding you, Sam. But we worked on this for five minutes because it was blowing a gale. The field was an absolute joke. We turned to Gavis and Gaffer, let's get it. This is a waste of time. So we go in. We'll go out the next day at Wembley and we could not have played any better. To a man, every single player did their job incredibly well. And even though it was a 1-0, it should have been like a 4 or 5 battery. I'd never played against two before as a, as a lone striker. I loved it because it was... Like I said, right at the start of our conversation, I had to, I had to keep the team playing. When the team was under pressure, I had to hold the ball. I, I had to keep, you know, bring it in, then lay it back to uh, Walkie or, or Talbot. So I think we kept Arsenal down to one shot. I, I remember Malcolm McDonald one shot, but it was uh, phenomenal. You know, all the old stories of, you know, yes, it's a boy who dream to play, play for a team, go to FA Cup final, but when you... It's funny enough, my son sent me the footage a couple of days ago. You can see when, when we're coming out of the tunnel, I actually turn round because you talk about the hairs on the back, on the back of your neck standing up because when we came out of the tunnel, all we could see was red and white because the far end was the Arsenal fans. And we thought, you know, because we were a provincial side, you know, would we have much support? We had incredible support. And when the wall of sound hit me, uh, as we came out of the, the tunnel. It was an incredible feel. I'm getting uh, goose, goosebumps now thinking about it because it was something else. It really was. You had a great period after that where the goals kept coming more regularly. You scored a wonder goal for England against Norway, which you mentioned. But the peak of your achievements at Portman Road arguably came in the UEFA Cup campaign. Goal yep. in the quarterfinal against Sanetien. Scored in the final against AZ Alkmaar. What, what, what was it that made you so successful in that period? I think um, adaptability uh, to situations. Again, we won the deep squad. Played a lot of games. I think I think Russell Osman played sixty nine games that season, which is unheard of nowadays at a proper level. By the way, not not like you know fifty games of rubbish, but at a real top level. You know, it, it's all about challenges. I remember going to St Etienne. We we got to the ground at six o'clock, and the stadium was full. And we thought that we'd missed the kickoff. We thought, some, why is the ground so full? It was absolutely rammed. The St Etienne side, I think, had seven internationals for France, and we were sort of, like, you know, nobody really knew what what we had. We, we went a goal down to Johnny Rep. Johnny Rep scored, famous uh, Dutch striker. After about five minutes or so, we didn't get our heads down, and we, we I think, we pummeled them four away from home, and pummeled them at home three or four as well. Again, it's the the level in which the players held a themselves uh, every single game, and the way that the the manager managed that small group of players. They had to play on through some some injuries. Maybe some players wouldn't play on nowadays through injuries that we got. It was touch and go at the end, though, Sam, because we were absolutely on our knees in, in the final. We we we've beaten three at our place. On the Saturday, we went up to. Middlesbrough, we had the championship in our hands. We've beaten Villa three times that season in the Cup and home and away. Uh, we won the up at half-time uh, and then we eventually got beat uh, 2-1, so that gave Villa the, the title. So we had to pick ourselves up for the second leg of the final at the Olympic Stadium in Amsterdam. And it was tough. It was really tough. We, we got a goal up early on, but they threw the kitchen sink at us. It was an unbelievable game. Uh, we eventually won it, but it was we were exhausted after that after that uh, campaign, to say the least. And I still got I don't know why I've got this ridiculous image of Brazil picking up his um, medal, and he's got a bathrobe on. I mean, I don't know where's you, where's you got a bathrobe on in the UEFA Cup final? What's that all about? Anyway. <laughs> Only Brazil can pull stuff like that, off like that. At the 1982 World Cup, you started the first match of the tournament against France. Brian Robson scored one of the fastest goals in World Cup history. You scored the goal that sealed the victory and made it 3-1. Francis and Marino! 
That surely wraps it up for England. What was it like for you? What did it mean to you to score at a World Cup finals? And bearing in mind that England hadn't been there for a while. Amazing. I can still remember the dressing room before we went out. I can still remember looking down the line at the French side thinking, if we beat these lot, we're probably going to be okay and advance. It was incredibly hot, though. It was in Bilbao when the, the stadium was, was dropped in, into the ground. It was so hot. And um, before we went out, Ron said to us, we're going to go high press the whole game. We sort of looked at each other thinking, is this physically possible? Because we, we just had an incredible campaign of, uh, you know, first division in international football plus the Europeans uh, competition. And we did. And, and it, it was amazing that when the... When we got the th- the throw in, big t- big butch and myself go to the near pole. I mean, every man and his dog knew what we were going to do, apart from the French side. Robo comes late from the edge of the box, not picked up, and smashed it in the back of the net. It was it was literally a sharp intake of breath because we it was a dream start. We knew once you get in the front foot, we we're going to be difficult to beat again because we had the incredible camaraderie in the group. Even though Kevin Keegan and Trevor Trevor Brooking were were injured, not available, so we go goal up and yeah, you know, we're seemingly going okay. And then it was we're going at one apiece at half time, and we're absolutely on our knees. It's it's so hot, and the gaffer said, "Look, we've got to keep high pressing these." Anyway, we did. Robo got a couple of goals. I I nicked him one late on. Weakest celebration I've ever had because I could <laughs> I could hardly move actually. And then, of course, uh, of course, we're we're elated in the dressing room afterwards. We know where the lads are going. The lads are going back to the hotel for a, you know, replace the fluid, so to speak. Robson and I get pulled for the not a drug test, but you know the old uh, the old test. And the, we've, we've got nothing in us. I, I lost eleven pounds that game. Obviously, just just water, but I lost eleven pounds. We we couldn't. We we're drinking everything in sight. Anyway, Robbo and I, we eventually got back to the hotel maybe two or three hours after the rest of the lads and uh, had a little celebration because that was a very important victory. That. Um, you mentioned there that you were out on your feet after game at the end of game one. The heat was so much. They went for the high yeah. press. You'd played so many games during the course of that season. The idea now that we play too much football is often talked about. But this is in an era where you were playing FA Cup ties that went to replays right from the very start, two-legged yeah. League Cup ties, replays <laughs> that went on for, for forever if you didn't finish them. I mean, in the end, yeah, but it was three or four replays sometimes. Yeah. I mean, there was a lot yeah. more football in 1982. A, lo- a lot more football and and not-so-deep squads. It's, uh, look, it's, it's wonderful for coaches nowadays to have, to have such fantastic squads. You know, they can... I mean, Liverpool, Liverpool can, and City to a certain degree can probably put two teams out and, and still not drop off that much. Uh, it wasn't like that in the old days. You was, if you look at that you could have maybe two or three that could come in and, and maintain the level, you were very fortunate. Yeah, that, 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 was, a, that was the way it was. And, and you've got to remember that uh, there was only one sub in the old days, eased off progressively. But uh, yeah, it was, um, it, it was tough, but incredibly enjoyable i mean I, I wouldn't i wouldn't swap it for anything i was I'm, i was just proud to have, have, have had the opportunity that people gave me those celebrations in the hotel after that world cup victory <laughs> who led them well i, I must say that mr robson that uh, mr brian robson was a, a bit of a hero <laughs> Ter- terry mcdermott was the great, one of the greatest people I've ever met in my entire life. We just had so many characters, you know, Ray Wilkins, you know, Rick C, Big Butch. I mean, you can go through the side. I mean, we, I mean, the goalkeepers union, Clement Shilton and Corrigan. I mean, I mean, think about those three goalkeepers. I mean, they're getting to any any side in the world at the present moment, you know. So we just had great lads. That game against France, we knew that that if we could get three points out of that, we we're almost home to the second phase. There is one iconic moment of that World Cup, which is of you consoling Kevin Keegan at the realisation that his World Cup career is is over, his international career as a sort of main entity is over, and he'd missed a big chance, which could have taken England to the next stage. Yeah. What happened there? 
The build-up was was terrific. We're at the second phase, which is uh, I don't know whether we have to explain that to people, but we were undefeated in the World Cup. We go to the second phase at, at the Bernabeu in Madrid against uh, Germany and Spain, mm. which is you know hard enough as it is, um, and we just couldn't score. The the build-up to Kevin's chance is good build-up, and normally Kevin would have would have put that in absolutely with his eyes eyes closed but he'd, he'd been injured he had to go back to back to Germany to get his back sorted out he hadn't played much football hardly trained you know when when Trevor and, and Kevin came on we thought okay this this might be a, a chance for us to you know to, to get there and look the, the goals that the performances that he's put in for Liverpool and, and England and all the all the teams that he's that he's played for, um, European football of the year, he's put some incredible shifts in. It's just one of those things. It's happened. It's happened to us all. Um, and he just missed the golden opportunity, and I, I just picked him up and just get over it. I said, "Come on!" I said, we'll, "We'll let's try and get another chance." I mean, you know, we'll be all right. There'll be a, there'll be another one. You know, we've all been there. All all the strikers, all the strikers union, we've all been there. Did you feel as if it was your responsibility to drag him up? in his devastation because you were one of the only people probably on that team as a striker who have experienced moments like that. You know what it felt like. You could really empathise. Well, I, I could empathise with him because the golden boy of, of, well, we had some very good players, but the golden boy of our side who, who couldn't really contribute, as I said, because of his injury. And for him to come on with it, OK, is he, is he going to be the saviour for us? He could have been the saviour, he wasn't. As you came into your thirties, Arsenal took you, and we're talking yeah. 1984 now. What did they say to you on joining to take you to Highbury? What sort of club were you joining? Because this was all pre-George Graham, wasn't it? Well, Don Howe was the was the gaffer. I'd known Don for such a long time, as because Don was the assistant coach with England. I had a bit of a falling out with Ipswich over, you know, silliness. I got a phone call. Do you want to go to Arsenal? What a ridiculous question! Of course I do. So I, I get down to Highbury. The way that you're treated at, at the Arsenal is the only analogy that I can come up with is at Ipswich. We were a good side, and we had steak kidney pies in Carlsberg after the games to recover on the trips coming home. With with Arsenal, we'd have a three course meal with the. Uh, people serving us on the bus. It was jaw-dropping. When when I got to the club, Charlie Nick and Tony Woodcock, Viv Anderson, who were my mates at, uh, with England, you know, they, they, they teamed me up. But them quite teamed me up for what, what I witnessed. It was, uh, you're treated like royalty. How did you think the move worked out in retrospect? Well, initially it was fantastic. Playing with Tony and, and playing with Charlie Nick in the hall, as, as I've said, it was a dream, really, for a centre-forward. The service coming in was, was fantastic. You knew your job, you knew your role. But then everything started to catch up with me. I'd already suffered Achilles tendon trouble at, at Ipswich. Um, and then I started suffering problems with my Achilles again. And it doesn't matter whether you're a footballer or any, any athlete. You know, when your Achilles starts to go, then you know, all, all hell breaks loose with your body. I remember it clearly. What, what didn't help me was, I think it was, I think... I stand corrected if, if I'm wrong here, but I think it was Glenn Huddle's testimonial at uh, White Hart Lane. A ball got played through, and, and Chrissy Hooten, who was pretty quick, I'd just got a little march on him, and I, and I was in. And he stood, if you can imagine getting studs uh, between your ankle and your Achilles tendon, he ripped it, ripped it uh, open. It was very, very serious. I, I got took to hospital. It was turning green at one time, and they thought I might have to have a really serious uh, issue with that, but the doctors pulled me around and then, then I eventually got back training but I wasn't the same and then as you said you touched on it earlier George came in and George wanted to change things and I went down the road to Portsmouth and with uh, Mr Ball Yeah um, did they play you as an emergency centre half before you left? I knew you would bring that up <laughs> <laughs> well the, the, the thing is Don says look he said look we're struggling for centre half he said I, I, I want you to play centre half on me I said oh I don't know about that Gaffer. He says, look, you'll be fine. He said, just do the opposite you've been doing. I said, well, I don't, I don't think it's going to be that easy. Cut a long story short, it wasn't that easy and it was uh, 
I don't look back on it with a great deal of pride or a great deal of pleasure. Let's put it that way. Um, you mentioned you went from Highbury to Fratton Park, a team looking for promotion to the first division under Alan Ball. Um, what was he like to work with? Absolutely remarkable. Mick Shannon, I think Mick had just retired. Mick and, and Bawley were massive pals. Mm. Um, so I went down there, had a word with a gaffer. Ironically, this, this is a bit, I mean, people, I don't know if people know Alan Ball Sr. Alan Ball Sr. was the manager of Preston North End. When I, the day that I got on the train to go to Plymouth, Alan Ball Sr. tapped on my mother and father's door and said, I want to sign Paul. He said, he's too late. He's just got on the train to Plymouth. <laughs> so, ironically, coming full circle, I signed for his son. And I was delighted to do so, you know, a local lad as far as I'm concerned, a Bolton lad uh, to play for such an icon of, of of English football, you know, winning the World Cup in 66, you know, energy personified, Harvey Ball and Kendall. Was it, was it Kendall in the old days at Everton? I mean, just, you know, fantastic player, but a great lad to play for. He knew exactly what, he told me exactly what I want, he wanted from me. We had some right renegades around us, some wild characters in that dressing room. Yeah, some seriously uh, wild characters in that dressing room. That was seriously wild. I mean, uh, <laughs> I, 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 we went to, on pre-season to the Isle of Man. Don't ask me why we went to the Isle of Man on, on pre-season. But I go over on the ferry. I turn up. I thought I was in prison. I thought this is must be like Devil's Island or something because these guys were out of control. We're Some talking about you got Quinn there. You've got uh, Kevin O'Callaghan. You've got um, Billy Gilbert. Billy Gilbert. No Blake, uh, Mickey Kennedy got, got Alan Knight, Knighty, yeah, the goalkeeper. The only sane member there was was Kenny Swain. Kenny was at Villa in, in the old days. I think he's coaching for England now. But I, I turned to Ken. I said, Ken, I said, what the hell have I joined here? He says, uh, oh, get used to it. He says, going to be a fun ride. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly was because you ended up getting promoted, didn't you? Um, yeah, formed it, a good it was, partnership it, there. Yeah, as I said earlier, Quinny. You know, as a as a, a technical player, you wouldn't say he had great technical skills, but my goodness, if you put him in that attacking third in the box, he knew exactly where the back of the net was. I wasn't scoring that many goals uh, that season. Bolly was still happy with what I was doing. Quinney was sort of the same because, you know, his goals and, and I mean, defensively, we're, we're a, a decent group defensively. We, uh, we did well. And ironically enough, it's, you know, Joking aside, we actually found out that we got promotion when we were all in the in the snooker uh, billiard hall playing, <laughs> having a few pints. Because we, had, we, I don't, I don't think we won. I think, we, I think we came up second or something. Yeah. But because of the results, we ended up uh, getting up. So ironically, we got absolutely blasted that night. No surprise. <laughs> <laughs> Later in your career, you went off to Australia to the Albany Capitals and San Francisco Blackhawks in the states. Yep. What did yep. you learn on those travels? I'd learn very quickly about the passion of the game outside of the the bubble that is the UK people in the states they they knew everybody they knew about the game even though it wasn't wasn't televised that much it was a struggle to get games on the television in those those days i'm talking about 88 to 91 those sort of days in san francisco was the 91 to 93 but you could see that there was an enthusiasm. I mean, yeah, a lot of expats, a lot of uh, you know British people out there and Europeans. But you could see that there were there was a thirst for the game. There was they were anxious to get the games on the telly. You know, you know, getting teams over to play on pre-seasons. You know, stuff like that. So th- there was a thirst for it. There's obviously a naivety about players because most of the players we would just get from university college. So that was, you know, when I, when I moved into the coaching ranks with Stevie Nicholl, that's where we got all our players from, predominantly American college players. But they they respected the game, they wanted to get better, they wanted to improve. You know, coach's dream, really. I mean, uh, and, and with the American lads, really didn't get, have any trouble with them at all. You became a coach, as you say, first in youth football, then you were assistant at Harvard Crimson, then the uh, New England Revolution. What does Paul Mariner, the coach, look for in a centre-forward now? It's still the old attributes, really. I mean, if if you look at, let's talk about about the best. Let's talk about Harry Kane at the moment. Harry, he can do absolutely everything. Your first line of defence when the play breaks down always reminds me 
of the great pairing of, of Rush and Dalglis, they were phenomenal. When they when they lost possession of the ball, that's the first thing that came into their mind, close that ball down. That's what Harry does. What else does he do? He holds the ball up. He's always available for the out ball in that defensive third. He keeps it keeps you playing. He draws the foul. He picks the right pass. He doesn't take too many touches on the pass to maintain the pace of the of the attack going forward. And then in the attacking third, he does what he's good at. He gets in the box. People know that he, that's that's what he does. You don't see Harry drifting out wide too often. But when he's in the box, because of his movement, because of the work that he does on the training ground with, with the players that he works with, they're obviously told to get it in at a certain time. And he knows that. He makes a run. And because his timing's impeccable, he gets that, just a, a foot in front of the defender and invariably it's in the back of the net. That's what everybody's looking for. All, all coaches and scouts are looking for those attributes. You know, obviously pace and power and ability in the air, which is not as important nowadays, but obviously some set pieces, yes. Nothing really changes, but the thing is, there's not many people got Hurricanes attributes. <laughs> At the end of these interviews, we were testing our number nines, our centre forwards, to see how well they know themselves. We've got three questions just about you. Are you ready to take them on? Not really, but go on. (laughs) Question one was, what was unique about your first and last goals for England? My first goal was against Luxembourg, and I can't tell you anything about it. What was that? Who was the last goal against? No idea. Luxembourg? Oh my goodness, really. Hey, a couple of power out well, a power outside if ever there was one. <laughs> <laughs> who scored hey, it doesn't matter who you score against, as long as you score. Uh, who scored the first goals of Ipswich triumphant FA Cup season in January nineteen seventy eight? I'm gonna guess and say Trevor Weimark. No, it was you. You scored twice against Cardiff <laughs> in a two nil victory. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> I don't take much interest in myself, to be honest. In the run-up to the World Cup in Spain in 1982, you scored how many goals in the final five warm-up games? It was either five or six. Four. All right, four. (laughs) Brilliant. (laughs) Listen, Paul, it's been great to talk to you. Thank you very much for taking us through your career. Anytime, anytime. Brilliant. That's Paul Mariner, the former Arsenal, Portsmouth and Ipswich Town forward and scorer of a goal at the World Cup too. The Premier League All Access podcast is proud to be brought to you by Ladbrokes. The latest odds? We set them. Form guides? We've got them. Expert opinions? We share them. The best fans in the world deserve the best. Be match day ready before the whistle blows with Ladbrokes. Odds update on Talk Sport with Ladbrokes. Are you in? Let's go. Play at ladbrokes.com, 18 plus, begambleaware.org, T's and C's apply.